Good morning, guys. Come over and have a seat. Come on and have a seat. <clears throat> How's everybody doing today? Good? What's up? My voice feels like this morning it's starting to crack. We did have the men's conference yesterday. So raise, raise your hand if you're at the men's conference. We had about 16 to 18 of us and like 12 stay the night on the floor of this church. So yeah, yeah, it was great. But singing, talking, uh, my voice might be gone. But good thing we have a microphone, right? I don't have to yell. Hey, if you have your Bibles and you want to pull them out and track with us, we are in the book of 1 John. Uh, we're working our way through 1 John, this letter that John wrote to all the churches in the area. Um, and we're, we only have like two more weeks left of this series, and then we'll be closing this chapter. Um, so we're in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Um, and we're going to read 6 through 9 in a little bit. But there is a very important question that we all must answer before we die. All right? And that question is, who is Jesus? Like, that's a question, that's one of the most important questions in the world. And it, everything hinges on that question. Our salvation, heaven and hell, our victory here on earth, like all these things hang on the question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And so in this letter of 1 John, um, and we, we know this is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, he is attempting to answer this question, who is Jesus? So I want to read the first part, which is 1 John 5, verses 6 through 9. And it says this, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these things agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has born concerning the Son, which we, he has made concerning the Son. So John starts out our passage today, like in his letter, he goes right to this, and it's kind of a perplexing passage, wouldn't you say? Like, maybe if you're reading this, it's something that you read and think, what does that mean? And if you don't have a commentary, you're like, I don't really know what that means, but I'm going to keep reading and see what it means. But the perplexing passage and phrase is, Jesus came by water and blood. Okay? Like, what does that mean? What, what is John trying to say here? Um, and I'll say, as you look in commentaries, there's a couple, there's like two main opinions about what this means. Okay? Um, the first one is, the first opinion from Bible scholars is they believe it's referring to Jesus' baptism and Jesus' crucifixion. So he came by water, meaning he was baptized just like us, and then he, was, he came by blood, meaning he was crucified in, for us so we could have new life. And so he came by both water and blood. Um, the other explanation, which I think makes more sense and the one I tend to believe and the one I think he's referring to is um, Jesus' birth. So when he says 
Jesus came by water, a lot of that phrase that you see in the Bible is when it says somebody came by water, it means they came by birth. Meaning like, you know, when your water broke, if I'm getting really specific, or in the, you know, when you're born, you're kind of in a, a place of water inside your mother, basically. Um, and John also refers to this when he's talking to Nicodemus in John 3, when he says, you must be born again. Remember, Nicodemus is like, what do you mean I must be born again? And he says, a man must be born by what? A water and spirit. So he's saying, everybody needs to be born of water, which everybody is, and you also must be born of the spirit, which is born again, saved. And so he, he, that's what I believe it means. And then also the blood refers to Jesus' death on the cross. So he's making this point that Jesus came not only by water, but he also came by blood. He came by these two things. But if we remember why he's saying this, it's important to realize there is a lot of false teachers at that time. Do you remember there was a group called the Gnostics? G-N-O Gnostics. You know, the Gnostics. And these, this group was going around answering the question, who is Jesus? But they did it in a false way that was wrong, and people were starting to believe them. So John said, I got to get this letter out and teach the church who Jesus is. Make sense? You guys following me? So, so he had to, like, really, First John is a knockout punch to the false teachers because John was not only with Jesus, he saw Jesus, but he was one of Jesus' closest followers. So that's what we talked about through this whole letter is, I know Jesus, and I know the real Jesus. Now, the Gnostics taught this, and I think I mentioned this before in week one or two, but they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, like he was the Christ. What they believe is Jesus was an ordinary man, and when he was baptized, the Christ spirit came on him, and he lived his whole life, and then right before the cross, the Christ spirit left him. Does that make sense? So they believe he was just a, a man who had the Spirit of Christ on him, and then the Spirit of Christ left him, and he died a man as well. Um, and that's just not true. And that was, maybe that's not a teaching that would lead us astray, but it was certainly a teaching that was leading them astray, that Jesus was just an ordinary man. And um, we do not believe that. And John is basically refuting that, saying, no, the Christ came by water on Christmas Day, Christ was born of Virgin Mary. So actually, the Spirit of God came upon Mary. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary, who was a virgin, and made her be pregnant with Jesus. And so he was actually born the Christ by water. Does that make sense? Okay. A little deep stuff for us this morning on a Sunday morning, on Super Bowl Sunday, but it's important that we talk about that. Um, so was Jesus God or was Jesus man? And that's an important question that we're tackling today. Was Jesus God or was Jesus man? And this is really important because the answer is he was both, right? He was both. Um, and that goes back to our question of who is Jesus? The person of Jesus was both God and man. Um, and this word that we refer to this is called the incarnation. Does that make sense? It was called the incarnation. Um, and so um, this was a very important theology because um, it had to be flushed out because people were a little confused about that at first. They know Jesus died. They know Jesus rose again, but they weren't sure if he was 
100% God or he was just a man who was, had the Spirit or had God, but he was actually God and he was actually man. It's called the incarnation. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Um, it's a very important theology that we need to learn about and know. Um, and so the incarnation says that Jesus Christ is God and man, yet one person forever. He was, he was God and man in one person. In John chapter 1, the very beginning of John chapter 1, and then in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says this. In the beginning was the what? Yes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... Yes. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Okay? This is where one of the key texts of like what, who is Jesus and what exactly was he? It said the word was with God. That's a whole nother sermon for a different day, but that's talking about the Trinity. The Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in one God, not three. And he's saying the word is with God and then the word was God. And then the Word became flesh, born of Virgin Mary. And we call this Word Jesus, God's only Son. So <clears throat> the people were asking the question, if Jesus is God, like why did he get hungry? Right? Like look at, look at John 4, 2. It said, or I'm sorry, Matthew 4, 2. It says this, after fasting, I think it'll be up there, yeah, there. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And so you could picture this. Like, you ever tell somebody, hey, Jesus did it. We're supposed to live like Jesus. And what does somebody say? I'm not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. And it's like Jesus was a man and God. But the humanity of Jesus, like, can you imagine Jesus not eating for 40 days and he's just like, I'm, and so, I'm so hungry, I'm in pain. I'm so hungry, I'm in pain. And he felt that, just like us. Um, the other one that I always think about, because I think is just interesting, is in John 4, chapter, or 4, chapter 4, verse 6. It says this, um, Jesus was traveling, and it says, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. So Jesus was walking for a long time, and he was just tired. And they asked the question, if Jesus is God, does God ever get tired? Does God, is God ever up in heaven like, oh, man, this is hard work. Like, that's not God, right? Like, Jesus, God is all-powerful. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't, like, get exhausted or need a nap or anything like that. He's just God, so he doesn't know that. Like, we, we can only handle so much as people, Right? But God can handle immensely more than we can think or imagine. That's why I tell people, don't worry about burdening God with your prayers. Some people think, well, God's too busy with stuff going on in other countries to worry about me. And it, when you say that, you take this big God and you make him into a tiny God, right? God only has enough to handle a little bit. I don't want to put too much on God's plate. It's like, that's not God. So, so, you see that, and then you see Jesus, who is God, and you think he was tired and just wore out. It's like Jesus needed a nap, just like us, right? 
And so <clears throat> we ask these questions, and the people asking those questions, how was Jesus hungry? How was Jesus tired? How was Jesus tempted to sin? Do you guys remember that? When he was brought in the desert and he was tempted for 40 days by the devil, and he was actually tempted to sin. And it's like, could he have even sinned? Could, could Jesus have sinned? I think the humanity side of him could. I mean, he was tempted in every way. And if there's no way he could have sinned, then it wouldn't have been temptation, right? So Jesus was tempted to sin and disobey the Father, his humanity side. And so how is this? And then at the same time, Jesus, at different parts of the Gospels, forgave people's sins. They said, hey, Jesus, can you heal me? And he said, I'll do you one better. I'll take away all your sins. Your sins are forgiven. Well, who could do that but God? <laughs> right? And he, in a sense, he's saying, what would you rather be? Would you rather be able to walk again or would you rather have all your sins forgiven? And he's like, I could do that. Um, and so um, the people got together shortly after um, the early church was started, and they developed something um, called the... Uh, how do I say this? The uh, Chalcedian Creed. Um, and about this uh, Chalcedian Creed, it happened in 451 AD, so a long time ago. But John Piper says this about this. He says, The early church considered the incarnation to be one of the most important truths of our faith. Right? So this incarnation is the most important truth of our faith. Because of this, they formulated what has become to be called the Chalcedian Creed, a statement which sets forth what we are to believe and what we are to not believe about the Incarnation. This creed was the fruit of a large council that took place from October 8th to November 1st of 451 AD in the city of Chalcedon and has been taken as the standard orthodox definition of the biblical teaching of the person of Christ um, since that day by all major branches of Christianity. Um, there are five main truths which the creed of uh, Chalcedon summarized in the biblical teaching of the Incarnation. So basically, they met for like a month in a council of believers to hash out this creed so they could have five things that they say we believe about the Incarnation. And there's other creeds, there's other councils they had, but what they wanted to do is stamp out what is, are we to believe, and what's the church to believe? And so here are the five truths that they reduced down. Um, Jesus has two natures. He's God and man. Each nature is full and complete, meaning he was fully God and he was fully man. So they were not half natures. Um, and that's number three. Each nature remains distinct, meaning that when God and man came together, they didn't form like a third nature of a blend of the two. He was actually fully God and fully man, distinct of each other. Christ is only one person, um, one being, one person. And number five, things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. So whatever is true of man was true of Christ. Whatever was true of God is true of Jesus. They're both true. Does that make sense? And it's important to realize that. And so that's kind of what he's flushing out. And it's important to know this. And I'll explain a couple of benefits of this and how it applies to your life. Um, because, again, 
they were confused. One day he's tired and needs a nap. The next day he's raising people from the dead. The one thing to realize is Jesus, the person of Jesus, is so amazing. We are going to learn about it and enjoy it for the rest of our lives and really throughout eternity. Amen? It's like so good who Jesus is and what he means to us. Um, so there's three things that are pretty amazing about the incarnation. Number one is through the incarnation of Jesus, we can see the heart of God. We can see the heart of God. In John 14, 8 through 10, it says this. Philip, one of the disciples, said, talking to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And so what Philip is saying is, we want to know what God's like. Like, nobody's seen God. Like, what's he like? What's it like to sit down with God? I want to know these things. I want to know, like, what, like, what is his personality like? What's his heart like? I want to know his heart. And in verse 9, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even I, after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen who? Yeah. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you want to know what God's like, just study me. The things that I do are the things that God would do. Um, so anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So, so here's the encouraging part. God understands you. So number one is um, we get to see the heart of God. So if you want to know what God's like, read your Bible. Read all of, of the stories of Jesus and the things that Jesus would do, God would do. The second thing is God understands you. So God understands you, not because he just knows you, but because he lived like you and lived among you. So everything that you experienced, God experiences. God experienced our pain and suffering. So everything that you've gone through, Jesus has gone through too. I think it's actually the next slide, guys, up there. Um, there you go. There you go. Thank you. So God experienced our pain and suffering, right? So when you are, uh, whatever you are going through, the God of the universe gets it. He's been through it. He has empathy for you. Ever been rejected by somebody? <laughs> Jesus has. Ever been betrayed by somebody and felt like you've been stabbed in the back? God knows exactly what that feels like because it happened to Jesus and it hurt him deeply. We don't serve a God that doesn't know anything about us. Ever been bullied? God has actually been bullied before. He not only knows it on a mental level, but God has been bullied through Jesus when he was being smacked and mocked before the cross. He knows exactly what it's like because he's felt it. And he feels the sting of that pain. Abused, tempted, he knows what it's like to be homeless. He knows what it's like to experience everything that we could possibly experience. The death of a loved one. God knows it. And the only time the Bible records Jesus weeping was when, uh, you know, his friend died and he was at his funeral because his heart was breaking and his friend is passing on. Like, God knows us. And that should bring us encouragement about the heart of the God. And the third part is, 
God wanted to be with us. God wanted to be with us. He wanted to make his dwelling among us. And that's super important. Um, he came down, God came down, and it's a Christmas story. Emmanuel means to God with us, to be with us, because God loves us, and he wanted to save us was his main objective. But here's the thing. The whole scope of the Bible is the amazing story of God wanting to be with us, his creation, in us turning our back on God. That is the whole context you see over and over again from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where he just wanted to be with us. He created us in his image to be with us in the garden. And what did we do? We ate from the only tree. We disobeyed God. We ate from the only tree we weren't supposed to. And then God came to us and said, okay, remember in, Gen or in Exodus, what did he tell Moses? The instructions. It's kind of boring for some of us to read, but it's the instructions for the tabernacle. Do you guys remember reading the instructions for the tabernacle? And it says, hey, I want the courtyard to be so many cubits long. The inside, there needs to be lampstands over here and a table of bread over here. And then behind the veil, there's the holiest of holies with the Ark of the Covenant, which you can make a sacrifice to once a year. And the whole point of that, as you read it, there's a couple key lines. It's like, I will dwell with you. He did all of that so he could be with us. He's a relational God that wanted to be next to his children. That's all it was. And then eventually, like, he created the temple and he filled the temple with his presence. And the people got to be with God. That was all looking forward to Jesus coming down. And so he said, hey, you had the tabernacle. You had the temple. Now I get to indwell and be the, in the person of Jesus Christ, God in flesh, and I get to live among you. And so now I get to be a person with you. Isn't that amazing? That God wanted to be with us so bad because we are his creation. He loves each and every one of you. And what do we keep doing? Turning our back on God. Like there's still people here today in our world, many, that know that God came down in the flesh but refuse to acknowledge him or worship him. And so when Jesus died, and rose again. He spent 40 days with the people, and then what did he do? He ascended into heaven in Acts chapters 1 through 3. And then on Pentecost, what did he give the church? His Holy Spirit. Why did he give the Holy Spirit? Look at verse uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your bodies are now the temple? Like, you used to go to the temple to experience God, and only a priest could do that on the Day of Atonement. But now, your bodies are now the temple where the Holy Spirit resides, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. Very amazing concept that God wanted to be with his people so bad, he created the temple, or the tabernacle, then the temple. Then we have Jesus who came to dwell among us. And when he left, he said, it's actually better that I go because now I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and now your bodies are actually the temple. And this is, you want to know where the Spirit lives? The Spirit lives in here. And you have the Spirit. It's such a good theology. And one day Jesus will come back for his church and eventually we'll get to be with him forever in eternity. But that's why it's so important. All these things are Jesus wanting to be, God wanting to be with his people. So bad. 
And so the last part of our passage, I'm going to go 10 through 13. We'll just read the last part. It says this. It says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has what? If you have the Son, you have life. That is the gospel. If you believe in him, you have the Son, and if you have the Son, you have eternal life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So you, have, you believed, you've received the Holy Spirit, and you have the Son, and I'm writing this so you know that you have eternal life. You could be assured of your salvation. So, if you believe in Jesus and his death on the cross, you will be saved. It's the only way. And we all know that up here, right? Um, we know that Jesus died on the cross. You ask every, you know, five-year-old in Sunday school class, the answer is Jesus. <laughs> How do we go to heaven? Jesus, yes, you're right. We can know these things. But are, have you truly given your life to Jesus? That is the important question we all must answer. Not only who is Jesus, but when we go to heaven, hypothetically, in some way this is going to happen, we are going to be judged by what we did with Jesus. Did we know about him up here? Did we know about him in here? Did we live for him every day of our lives? Or did we just know him up here on an intellectual level? And I'll say this, and I, I thought there's a few things I took away from the men's conference this past weekend. Uh, one thing the speaker there was talking about, and he mentioned a number of times I thought was really good, but he said this, um, saving faith, you want to know you're saved, you know, saving faith is really three parts to saving faith. We all know this, all right? The first is a mental understanding. Like, you just know up here. I, there's people out there that know Jesus lived. They believe he went to the cross. He died. He rose again. They know all the parts. They know it up here in their mind, right? Okay, mental understanding. The second is agreement. Yes, I agree God did this. I agree he did it for me. I, I can thank him for it. So you understand it up here. You agree with it. And then the third part to saving faith is you surrender to it. You know it. You agree with it. And then you surrender your life to it. And if you don't have the surrender part, you're not saved. You know, you can know up here, like you know the back Bible frontwards and back and agree with it that it's all good, but that's what the demons believe, right? Like Satan knows the Bible better than you and I probably will ever know the Bible. And he uses it in his schemes against us. So we, we can know it up here, but have we surrendered our hearts to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm going to give my whole life to you, every part to you. If our, if our lives were a mansion and there's many rooms, we have to leave, let Jesus in and have control over every room. And we can't take one of the rooms and block it off and say, no, Jesus, you can't have this room. Because if you don't give all of yourself to God, you've given none of yourself to God. 
So, have we surrendered our life to Jesus? That's the important question. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads, and I'm going to pray. Um, while everybody's bowing their heads and closing their eyes, um, there might be some people here who've never, they, maybe they understand the Bible, but they've never surrendered to the gospel and say, Jesus, you could have every part of me. I'm sick of holding things back or living my own way. We can do that right where we're at. You could do it now, you could do it later, but if you put it off too long, you're in trouble. And all we need to do is simply say to God in our heart, in our mind, in a whisper, is God, I surrender my life to you. In your own way, you could take a moment and do that right now. Heavenly Father, we come before you and God, my prayer is everybody in this room that's listening and everybody who's online listening, that they surrender their life to you. And they go beyond the head knowledge and they go into the surrendering part. And they say, I give it all to you, God. I hold nothing back. And God, I pray that you move in revival. Because God, I believe and I fear that there are people in churches all across America that know you so well, but they haven't surrendered to you. And I pray that we, as a church, do that. And we go out and tell other people about that too. Because we don't have much time. Your word, your word says the end is near. The day is coming fast. So I pray for that, God. I pray that you're such a good God. You said, my, take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Living without me is the hard part. Take your, my yoke upon you, and I will give you rest. God, I pray that we all do that today and recommit our lives to you. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.